It's pretty unusual. I don't remember us doing that for quite a long time. Uh, the prior week, uh, Mitch Wiggins uh, was a speaker for the Sojourners in the state of Florida. That organization, which is, uh, does many good works, uh, made up of people that are uh, a little bit more along in years than others. <laughs> I, I spoke, and I think he said at least once a day, every, for about a week. And he said it was, it was a task. This week, Mitch is with our group of people that are on the medical mission trip to Ecuador. Mitch had never gone to Ecuador before, and I think this is a great opportunity for him to join that group and be on that uh, trip. Last Sunday, appreciated when Dwayne called me about a month ago and asked me to come. Um, it has been a number of years. I came, I think, before you hired Mitch in that interim time and came and filled in a time or two. And one time I came years past, the power was out. We had worship service in here with, in the dark. I remember that vividly. But uh, I will never walk through the doors that I don't remember uh, a deep and, and good relationship I developed through the years with Bonnie Smith. She was a joy. Uh, it didn't take long when going in the office when Joe, Ed, and Rusty were in there to realize she ran the ship. And uh, they, they did what she said. And, and uh, you know, I've been 26 years at Foster's Home. I think Rusty, if I remember right, <clears throat> does 30 years this 
this month or this year at uh, Western Heights, if I remember right. And that is a, that is a milestone to be commended. Uh, Rusty's been a constant ever since I've visited here, and I know he does a good work, and you've kept him around because he's a blessing. Uh, I invited my, two of my siblings, David, my older brother, my older sister, Betty, uh, came today, and they're, they're sitting back there, and I appreciate them coming. Uh, we have a great family relationship, and I'll try to tie some things into that in a little bit. What I want to do this morning give you an update on some things at Foster's Home, tell you what you're responsible for, some of the kids' lives that you have impacted, some of the stories they have, and then segue into uh, a lesson that will tie, I believe, to your, to your theme of uh, mission possible, of outreach, of evangelism, of doing things outside uh, the walls of this church that impact lives now and for eternity. Um, I do want to mention, before I forget, uh, we, we express our appreciation for the bedding and the pillows and the sheets and uh, things that you gathered at Christmas time in December and gave to us. Uh, right now we have, uh, in state ratio, we have 66 kids in care. Uh, that is a lot of kids to feed, a lot of kids to house, a lot of uh, things to do for them. And we, we uh, appreciate your help in doing that, your budgeted support you've given to us since about 1997. You've invested over $43,000 in our kids that doesn't count what you get through the coin banks. That doesn't count what some of you do individually through memorial gifts or individual gifts. And I want you to know that is very much appreciated uh, at Foster's Home and the way that you invest in our kids. We have three seniors that will graduate this year. We're excited about that. For about the last seven years, every senior that we have had that entered the school year as a senior in August graduated and walked across the stage in May. And that is a tremendous milestone specifically because most of them turn 18 in their senior year. And truth be told, if they wanted to as an adult and they turn 18, they're magically adults, uh, they could sign themselves out of care and they could leave. And years ago, we had kids that would do that. They would get the itch to leave. They knew all the answers. Life was going to be better outside of Foster's home. So they'd get to be 18 in their senior year. And rather than finish that milestone of graduation, they would leave. And so we haven't had that happen in a long time. We had six graduates a uh, year before last, <clears throat> several last year, and three this year, and we're excited about that milestone for them. And I'm going to read uh, from uh, something two of them said here in just a little bit. Um, last year or so, we've had about 10 kids who have obeyed the gospel, and we're excited about that because in the, in the context of what we do at Foster's Home is we take kids out of a traumatic background put them in an, uh, an environment of safety, put them in an environment where uh, healing can take place for the wounds that they've suffered in the past. We do that in the context of a, a spiritual environment. All of our staff are members of the Church of Christ. Our kids go to worship and Bible classes at Churches of Christ. And uh, week by week and month by month, uh, as they hear gospel preaching and teaching, that has its impact in their life. And so several of the kids I'll talk about uh, are those who have obeyed the gospel. Last year in June, we were, we were on vacation. We took our grandkids. Uh, while they're still willing to go with us, my wife and I take our, our three grandkids camping. We were in Arkansas, and I got a text in Arkansas that said we had three siblings come into care, uh, Zane, Neville, and Allie. Uh, Zane was nine years old. Neville's eight years old. Allie was six years old. And I, I knew them because they were the great grandkids of one of our members at Toler, where I've worshipped for about 30 years. And... Uh, the reason they were with their great-grandmother is specifically because their mother and father had their 
because of the condition of their lives, they couldn't have custody of their kids. Neither set of grandparents had their life in order to where they could take care of their grandkids. And so their great-grandmother, who was in their 80s, kind of inherited the care of Zane and Neville and Allie uh, for a year. They lived in Toler with her, and so I was familiar with them. Two days later, after I got that text, right before we came back, uh, got, got news that Zane and Neville and Allie's father, <clears throat> who's 38 years old, took his life. So the first thing we did when we got back from Arkansas was went to a graveside service where a nine and eight and a six-year-old uh, kids are burying their father unbelievably difficult to watch them have to process that loss in addition to all the other losses they have endured. But because they live at Foster's home, they've, they've uh, had some stability through that loss, through that trauma. Uh, Zane got to go fishing, took him fishing with me a couple of times after that because he was just a little boy that was absolutely lost as you looked in his eyes. He lost his world when he lost his father. And uh, I grew up fishing. My dad took us fishing all the time at Lake Tawakany. And so I tried to share some times with him. And, and uh, from the time he would get in the car, pick up to the time we got back to campus several hours later, all he talked about was his father. Never had to ask a word, never had to prompt. So the best therapy he got in those three or four hours we, we were together was him being able to talk about the memories of his father. Took him to his father's gravesite, let him visit that. About three months ago, we had a sibling group of five come in to care. Uh, that morning, literally that morning, that Friday morning, the oldest, who is 10, Keon, found their one-year-old brother uh, dead in the house. Uh, CPS came, removed the kids. That Friday evening, placed them with us. When they came into care that evening, one of our caseworkers related the story to me. None of the kids asked about their little brother, None of them asked about their mother, who they've been removed from. Two questions they asked, will we each get our own bed, and will we have clean sheets? Those were the two things foremost in their thoughts when they came into care on a Friday evening. A month or two before that, we had a sibling group of four come into care. Three sisters and little, little brother, two-year-old brother, Darnell. And they came in, and they kind of sidled up against the wall. They were scared. Kids come into care... Uh, circumstances beyond their control. They're moved from place to place. They have a lot of things done to them. We'll talk about that in a little bit uh, in regard to the aspect of trauma. Uh, and our, our vice president uh, was talking to the older sister and, you know, talked to, tried to welcome them being there and, and uh, said, why are you here? And the oldest sister said, we're here to get some loving. And our little brother needs a lot of it. Darnell, two years old, both eyes were so swollen and black and blue that you couldn't see out of them. Now, those are things the world does to kids in our society. Those are the things sin does to kids. And those are the kind of kids we serve at foster's home, kids that come out of trauma. Uh, I mentioned our seniors a minute ago. Every year in September, uh, second Saturday in September, every year it's a standing date, we have our Children's Day at foster's home where we uh, invite our supporters to come. We, we kind of spend about an hour and a half in the gym honoring our kids. We have a program that, that kind of focuses around them. And our seniors get to give a speech. They really don't have a choice. They, they get to get as far as I'm concerned. But they, they learn to present themselves to people because they're going to do that the rest of their life. So they get to give what we call their senior speech. We've done that all 17 years I've been president. This past September, two, two of the 
uh, most moving speeches I have ever heard from our kids. Sometimes they'll get up and talk a minute or two. Sometimes they'll talk 10 minutes. And believe it or not, they have no, uh, there, there's no guidelines. I don't hear what they say until you hear what they say at Children's Day. And they could get up and, and be mad at the world and express that, and that's their freedom to do that. But they've always been responsible. This year, uh, two of our seniors, Layla and Ivy, got up and gave the most moving speeches I have ever heard. And so I'm going to read to you just a, a small excerpt from both of them because I think they define what we talk about when we talk about taking kids out of trauma and then what they go through at Foster's home and the end result because they've both been with us long enough that we've seen some transformation take place. Layla's been with us about five years, and I'm not going to read all of her two pages, but she writes this, interestingly enough, from the third-person perspective. Now, there's some, there's some reasons for that we won't get into. But, but toward the end of it, she says it's now August 2nd, 2013. She knows the exact date. That's the day she was saved. She's talking about herself. Says CPS arrived at her house to tell her mother that she's going to lose her kids. The little girl felt relieved. Finally, it was all over. The little girl went to her mother right before she left to say goodbye. Mother was outside sitting on the porch. Mother was sitting there with a blank expression. The little girl went to her mother and said, it doesn't have to be this way. All you have to do is leave him and you can have a better life with us. Mother stared at her, then said goodbye and walked back in the house. As a child, this is something you should never have to hear. That was the last time the little girl saw her. Then her last paragraph says, that was the story of my life. As a child, you shouldn't have to experience what I went through. You shouldn't have to be told what I was told. The day I was taken away from my mother, I was placed at Foster's Home for Children. This was a beginning of a new start, the start of something amazing. Being at Foster's Home has helped me in more ways than I could ever thank them. I'm now emotionally stable. I now have a family. I'm now loved and wanted. This is my home. And what I wanted to, to specifically tell you in regard to Layla, she was baptized a number of years ago, you helped write that ending to that story. Your financial support, your prayers for our kids, the times you've had me come through the years to report about what we do and the ways that you've been involved with us, you helped write Layla's story, the good ending to the story. Ivy has been with us about two years, came as a sibling group of three, Skipping down toward the end of her story, says Monica, that's her sister. Monica had received a near-perfect report card. Mom decided to celebrate. She and her boyfriend took us to the mall. I knew they were drunk. I said it wasn't safe. She got a public intoxication at the mall along with a one-year ban. Within three weeks, she went back drunk, getting a trespassing charge and a DWI. However, she failed to tell the police officers that she had three sleeping kids at home, which turned into an endangerment charge. So for three days, we didn't know what happened to her. One day, the third day, Ivy rode the bus to her therapist, told her that her mom was missing. She called the police. We thought she had ran away or died. Leaving someone alone with their mind is truly evil, she says. The police came and took us. All three of us went to an emergency shelter in Fort Worth for most of April of 2016. On the 28th, we came here, that is Foster's home, Nervous and scared from countless stories we've heard about the system. However, this place is nothing like what we heard. It's safe, clean, and friendly. The parents here are truly wonderful. 
They work ex exceptionally hard with these kids, all with different stories and cultures. I've made many friends here at Foster's, however, they're more so like family. Being here has helped me to grow. I got my schooling caught up, became a Christian, and listened to her last statement. I learned that loss isn't always a bad thing. Tremendous insight as she comes to understand loss sometimes is a good thing. And in the sense of losing her family setting to her became something good. As Ivy said, as Layla said, uh, the best day of her life was when CPS came and took her away from her mother. And we would never say that as an outside party, but a child who's gone through that can say that uh, in regard to their experiences. We have a young man from Salada, uh, actually son, adopted son of, of a missionary couple, not, not Churches of Christ missionary. And uh, Ethan's been with us uh, about a year now. And the first time I took Ethan with me, I went to, to the Highway 36 church out of Abilene to speak, and I took some kids with me, uh, as I sometimes do. And uh, Ethan's sitting in the front seat, and the whole, whole way over there, in, engaging him in conversation, I kept asking my question, why is Ethan with us? A, a highly functional young man, extremely sharp, bright, had, had plans for the future, and uh, Ethan was with us because he has a, a set of parents that that uh, I guess haven't learned to parent to the extent they should. And, and uh, when it came time for somebody to, to leave, it was going to be him. So they placed him with us. He'll be with us till he graduates uh, in two more years, doing extremely well. We are going through a, a building deal. Just going to talk one, one or two more minutes, then I want to really get into a lesson. We're, we're building three new homes at Foster's Home. We start construction late this year. We've already raised all of our building money. Our board has a policy that we raise the funds before we spend them. So we're building three new group homes that will open next summer. We've already broke ground for a house for 18 to 22 year olds that will open next June where two of these seniors, if not all three of them, will go live and have a place to, to stay for four or five years while they get their feet under them because most of them don't have families to go back to like your kids and my kids had. Uh, there's, there's no safety net underneath them when they graduate high school or when they age out at 18 of foster care. And so we're building a, a unit for seven of them to have their own individual apartments, uh, but a commons area where they can learn and to live together and share some things as well. That'll open up next summer. Uh, we're doing some other improvements. One thing we're doing is, is uh, here in the next two months, we've already ordered bedroom furniture for 44 kids' bedrooms, putting in new beds, uh, mattresses, the, the bedding you donated, uh, nightstands, dressers, desks, all those things. 44 new bedrooms uh, of furniture will come in uh, here in the next couple of months. We're doing a lot of things that that uh, trying to expand the capacity to serve because the number of kids is rising at a scary rate. Right now, Texas has over 20,000 kids under CPS supervision, and that number changes on the upward side each week that goes by. I'm not a I'm not a TV fan of the show This Is Us. My wife and daughter are, are hooked on it. Uh, I, I see it enough because I'm in the living room reading when my wife watches it to know it has, is, has roughly three people as a central character, three grown adults, and there's a lot of flashbacks to their childhood. In fact, my, my sister lived in L.A. for 40 years. She got the sibling, the, the, the uh, woman... <laughs> of the three siblings, got, got her to send a video to my daughter who teaches high school in Weatherford, sent a video to her in her class, just made her, made her month to do that. 
but apparently it's about three grown siblings, and they reflect back on their childhood. And the interaction is such that they, you, you get the idea that what happens as a child played to bear on what they become as adults. In fact, if you, if you read USA Today, today's issue, uh, Dr. Nadine Burks um, has an article in there talked about the concept of toxic stress. And she, she wrote the article based on, on that television show. Nadine Burks uh, is a pediatrician on, on the West Coast and uh, extremely good in terms of trauma theory and what trauma's done to kids. And she writes an article that really explains in a way that we can understand how what happens to us as kids impacts us the rest of our life. Some of the most powerful memories you have this morning, you could come up here and stand and talk about things that happened 50 years ago as though they were yesterday. You could talk about the good things, you could talk about the hurtful things, but those memories of what shaped your life as a child are significant enough that you carry those the rest of your life. You literally carry them the rest of your life. And they're like they happened yesterday. I was, I was teaching an in-service this past Monday at a, at a school system uh, to elementary teachers on the, on the topic of understanding kids from hard places. And in the, in the course of that, I talked about something that happened to me when I was in about fifth or sixth grade. I, I don't even know if David and Betty know this. Uh, one day I was standing on the porch, got home after school. The elementary school was to the, to the south of us. The junior high was to the, to the east. And our, our street was just a couple blocks from both of them. And I was standing on the porch, killing time, whatever a fifth grader does when he gets home, and saw a kid walking down the sidewalk uh, on our side of the street, got in front of the house next door to us. And all of a sudden, three or four guys came out from behind bushes and trees and just beat the stuffing out of this kid. I mean, beat him, beat him bad. Now, my nickname was Bone back then. There was no muscle on me. And the last thing I was going to do is run into that yard and try to help this kid. I was scared to death. Literally stood fixed in place on the porch out of fear. Finally, uh, Mr. Vaughn across the street comes running over, breaks it up, and, and saw to the hurt child. For at least two, if not three years after that, all the way through my junior high years, every time I saw a gathering of kids together, my thought was, they're about to gang up on me and beat me up. I lived in fear through my junior high years. Eventually grew out of it some in high school. But that would be what I would call a trauma. We, we talked in class, Rusty talked in class about this fight or flight syndrome. When we're faced with danger in an environment, all of a sudden our, our senses go to a heightened level of awareness. And we face two decisions. Either we're going to stay and fight or we're going to run. Uh, I was feeding, feeding my cat this morning in the dark before I left. About 6 o'clock, went out and put some food in the, in the bowl for the cat. And I heard a rustling in the leaves and smell the faint smell of a skunk. I'd killed a skunk about four days ago in my, in my front woods. And my fear was <laughs> there's a skunk coming over to get the cat food. Uh, and I wasn't going to fight that battle. So I ran back to the house and let the, cat have that if, uh, let the skunk have it if it wanted it. That had been a tough call to make to Dwayne and give a, give a reason I, I can't come today because I smell like a skunk. But uh, some battles you, you leave for another day. You've been in situations like that where, where all of a sudden the neck stands up on, your, on the back, hair stands up on the back of your neck. You're super alert, super vigilant. You're looking around you for danger. And usually in a few minutes that's gone. That goes back down. 
And as Dr. Dr. Nadine Harris said in her USA Today article, what if the fear never goes away? She gives an illustration of a bear in the woods. You see a bear in the woods, you either, either fight or flight, so you run. But she says, what if the bear goes home with you? And the bear is there every day, as in family violence, as in addiction issues, as in abuse, as in molestation, as in incest. What if your very own family, the, the unit God designed to be safe, is the source of your trauma? You can't get away from it. And so she addresses this issue of, of what she calls toxic stress, where we can't get away from the danger. And so as our, as our mission of the church is to be what God calls us to be, to be of all places a sanctuary, a place of safety, hasn't He created us to be the place of safety where people can go to for safety? And to teach others in our, in our communities how they can find that and access that. As people live in, a, in an environment of toxic stress, they don't know what to do. They go to the, to the pharmaceutical world to try to solve that. They go to other all kinds of, of alternative things to try to deal with stress and anxiety and trauma. And we are a part of the very family that God created to be the safe place. The place where peace passes understanding. The place where we, we sing a song, love the song that was sung just before I got up, where we learn the concept of loving each other. Even through our frailties and our weaknesses and our problems and the times that we blow it, we have a place we can go and find safety and find solace and find someone who will love us regardless of what we've done, in spite of what we've done. Because the very forgiveness that God offered us, we offer to each other. Paul would tell the Colossians. The very things that we give each other are what God has given to us. And we live in a world that has exponentially multiplied several generations of families that couldn't define what normal is if their life depended on it. Normal to a lot of our kids that come into care at Foster's home is witnessing family violence is witnessing alcohol addiction, is witnessing incest. That's normal because that's all they've ever experienced. Witnessing parents leaving for days at a time, abandonment. Witnessing anything but what we would call normal. And so we've seen that through several generational cycles. When I talked to the, to the teachers Monday at in-service, I gave some indicators of what trauma looks like in the lives of an elementary age kid. And all of a sudden, all these nodding heads among these 35 to 40 teachers, as they realize children in their classrooms, likely some of them come from a background of trauma, which explains the behavior of what they deal with. A number of years ago, we, we made a monumental change at Foster Tom. We lived by a behavior modification system for a long time. It's what a lot of children's homes did. You reward good behavior, you punish negative behavior, and you give consequences based on that. And that's good as far as it goes in addressing behavior. And you can use that to, to literally manipulate behavior to whatever you want it to do. The problem with that is it doesn't address the deeper level of what leads to behavior. It doesn't address the emotional level where behavior comes from. 
You read, read an article this past week about the, the postal worker shot and killed in the road rage accident. He worked with my brother, David. David re retired about two months ago. David knew the driver. Pulled onto an entrance ramp onto a highway. A few seconds later, a car, four occupants next to them, pulls a gun and shot them. If that driver or whoever pulled the gun, whether it's a passenger or driver, had learned to manage behaviors or manage emotions before they became behaviors, it would have been a lot smarter. Jesus said things in the Sermon on the Mount that really addressed this. He said, you've heard that, that it was said you shall not kill. I tell you, don't be angry with your brother. Instead of addressing the behavior, Jesus said, let's talk about the emotion that leads to it. Let's talk about anger. Unresolved anger leads you to pull a gun and shoot a driver in a car next to you. Because you haven't learned to regulate your emotions. You haven't learned to manage your affect, to manage, manage your emo own emotions in a safe way. And so Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount a number of times over and over. You've heard it was said this, but I'm telling you, let's go back to the deeper level. Rather than the problem being adultery, he said, the problem is looking at someone. It's on the emotional level of lust. And several other instances he gives us. The church ought to be at the forefront of teaching society how to regulate emotions, how to manage emotions in a safe way. That's not a psychological work. That's not a work of counselors. That's the work of the church. That's what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount to do. That's what we model to each other of how we live in a safe way with each other in community to where we don't hurt each other. We, we practice the oil of forgiveness. You know, I've always marveled an internal combustible engine that, that has all of these uh, revolutions per minute. General engine runs on the highway about 2,000 RPMs. 2,000 times a minute your engine is spinning. What keeps it from freezing up and locking up with all of that friction? Metal parts against metal parts. You fill the crankcase with oil. And when it's filled with oil, all of those moving parts can move in conjunction with each other. You can drive across the country. And the engine never burn up. You take the oil out, you won't get a mile or two down the road, and it just seizes up. We take forgiveness out of the context of us as a church family. We're doomed. We can't survive. And sometimes we're, we're pretty stingy about giving that to each other. Sometimes we're pretty stingy about giving it to those outside. And Jesus told a lot of stories about forgiveness especially about how much we've been forgiven and sometimes how little we forgive others. I've been listening to the, to the series and watching Mitch and watching the other speakers. I was trying to get the context of what, what you're doing in this series and then how I would, would dovetail into that. The beauty of what God has called us to do in, in the sense of the Great Commission it can involve people across the world. It can involve people in our very own communities, in our next door neighbors. Children are always going to be an avenue we can reach out to to serve. I remember the 1970s where I worshipped in Mesquite. We had, we had a joy bus ministry. I don't know if y'all ever had that at, at Travis Street or Western Heights in the early days. We ran buses. I mean, back in those days, people would give you their kids, and you'd take their kids off to church and, and uh, bring them back four or five hours later, and there was trust. I don't know that that would work today, 
Don't know that families would do that with the heightened level of, of danger we have, but we would fill a bus with kids. I was bus captain of bus number five, my wife and I, and we, we'd carry 30 to 40 kids three times a week to church services, take them back. And we had the ability to, to uh, plant spiritual uh, priorities and things in their mind. I, I went back and spoke where I grew up uh, about a month ago at, at Meadowview in Mesquite. And one of the members there was talking to me, and he said one of the kids that he knew back from that time, who's now an adult, uh, he asked him one day, what were, the, what were the things that made a difference in his life? And he said when, talking about my bus, when my bus came down the street and knocked doors and asked people to go to church, he said, Glenn knocked on my door, and he rode the joy bus, eventually became a Christian, now has a family. I mean, that's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. When you touch a child, you touch them for the rest of their lives. There is an urgency to what we do, because childhood is not long. To reach out and serve children, whether they be at foster's home, whether they come in out-of-home care through us, whether you serve them in this community through foster care, or whether you serve them through resources that you offer. Uh, I'm willing to guess if you put a class on as a community service here in Sherman, uh, helping blended families, helping parents deal with oppositional kids, helping kids cope with divorce, things along that topic, I bet you'd have people come out and attend that. And I bet there is enough wisdom resident within this congregation to teach classes like that and to offer resources and service and whether they know it or not, biblical teaching to people that would attend those who are looking for a better family, who are looking for a better way, who are looking for something better than what they've got because what they have is broken and is not working. And the problem is our society looks in all the wrong places. And part of that is because we haven't presented the church sometimes in its most ideal setting to the world, as a place where people can be safe. Sometimes churches aren't a very safe place at all by the way we respond to each other and the way we react to each other. God has called us to be a place where people can come and find what they need. And in the community in which we sit, we can offer those services to people around us, through their families, through their kids, and in so doing, take the gospel to them. I want you to listen to a passage in, in uh, John chapter 5. And I want you to get the, the human element of what happened. In John 5, background is there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And by the pool of Bethesda, there lay a multitude of people, John says in verse 3, who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Jesus sees a man there who'd been there 38 years. 38 years is longer than Rusty's been here. 38 years is a long time. 38 years longer than a lot of you have been married. 38 years a lot of, uh, longer than some of you have been alive. 38 years... He's been there in his sickness trying to get well. Jesus has a conversation with him and cuts to the chase and says, take up your pallet, get up and go walk. And he does. The man became well, took up his pallet and began to walk. And then the, the kind of the parenthetical statement, John says, it was the Sabbath on that day. 
And so the verses that follow talk about the issue that the Jews had with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Talk to the lame man who was cured, said it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. I'm not going to get into all the ridiculous nature of that argument. And uh, he finally identifies Jesus as the one that, that made him well. And then they have this conversation with Jesus, and he says something in verse 17 that, that uh, I'm still not sure I understand the full import of. He's answering the Jews who are criticizing him for what he did. And he says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Sometimes we think of God being in a passive sense. Jesus says, the father's working, and I'm working. Now, I'll tell you what is effective in, in uh, reaching people. Work. Work still works. Whether that work is making food for somebody that's sick, whether that work is helping a marriage heal over some rough spots, whether that work is helping uh, a couple with some parenting issues they have with a child, whether that work is whatever it is, work works. I grew up remembering that, that we, we drove, we had one car, parents had Six kids in one car. So we would take David to work at white stores, back when white stores were in existence. Y'all have no idea what white stores are. Uh, we'd take him to work every day. We'd go back and pick him up. I remember waiting. Couldn't wait till I turned 15 years of age so I could get, uh, get a job. Back in those days in the, in the 60s, you had to be 15. So I turned 15, went to work at a restaurant. Clean tables, clean commodes. Didn't make any difference what I did. Uh, even while I've been president at Foster's home, I was custodian of the church in Toler for 14 years, and, and that'll keep your CEO title in perspective when you're cleaning commodes every week. Uh, you realize not, you're not too good for anything. There's a thing about work. You've got to be willing to get dirty. You've got to be willing to deal with things that aren't pleasant. Uh, truth be told, I hate, I hate to dress up. I hate to wear a jacket. I hate to wear even dockers. I'd a lot rather put my red wing boots on my jeans and a work shirt and, and work and you can sweat uh, and be dressed for work. I learned early on teaching my father not to be afraid of work. We clean the garage all the time. I think we did it because uh, rather than cleaning the garage, the import was we learned to work. Our dad realized we need to learn that work ethic and we did. I have uh, uh, all of my siblings learn that work ethic well. I'm wondering if as God's people we haven't worked as much as we should, if we've been a little bit lazy, if we haven't been dressed to do the things we need to do. Here's the deal. When you work with people that hurt, when you work with people whose lives have been impacted by sin, it's not going to be pleasant. Sometimes it won't smell good. Sometimes you're going to deal with the stench of sin. You're going to deal with things that would never be a part of your world, but they are a part of the world of people you're working with. And those people need someone to intervene and say, I love you and I care. And I don't care what your world looks like. I'm here to bring something better than, than uh, what you have right now. And I think that's what God wants us to do. That's what Jesus did. You look through the gospel accounts. All the time, he is with somebody that's hurting. All the time, he's with somebody that smells. All the time, he's with somebody who bears the stench of sin. 
All the time he's dealing with somebody that other people won't mess with. You know, the Jews were worried about what you did on the Sabbath. They couldn't care less about the fact that the man couldn't walk for 38 years. You go to John chapter 9 and he heals a man born blind. They couldn't care less that the man was born blind. They're concerned about other issues that came from the healing because Jesus did it. All his, all his ministry, he's going to people that hurt. He's going to people that need healing. He's going to people that need someone to be their friend. And so he says in John 5, in, in defense of what he did, the Father is working and I'm working. And so the question comes to us, are we working? Are we doing the things God has called us to do? If Jesus walked through an ordinary day of your life, this day and time, what would he find you doing? What would be the consumption of your time? Would it be doing things that serve? Would it be doing things that, that uh, meet the needs of people that are hurting? Would it be doing things through which you would become the conduit for someone to, to understand how God changes lives as he's changed yours? Or would you be so wrapped up in the things of this world, the politics, the sports, the current events, that Jesus would just shake his head and say, why aren't you working? He says, the Father's working and I'm working. And I think he expects his church to work. I think he calls us to work. Malachi ends by saying that Elijah would come and be the one who would restore the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. We talk about a restoration movement a lot of times about what happened back in the 1800s. You know the restoration movement that needs to happen in 2018 is a lot of families need to be restored. Family relationships need to be better. And who better than God's people to take that mission on and to reach people for the gospel through addressing their family needs. The beauty of, of the church is this is a place where you can start over. This is a place where you can begin again. And there are people looking in a bottle. There are people looking in pills. There are people looking through sexual relationships for that feeling that comes from starting all over again. And they're not going to find it there. We found it. We found the restoral and the restoration that God offers us through the redemptive work of His Son. So the question is, will we share that with those outside these walls and allow God to restore their lives as He's restored our lives and make them whole again as He's made you whole again? Now here's the catch. Don't you go to work on someone else's family if your family's not in good shape itself. And sometimes our families aren't in very good shape. Sometimes we've allowed relationships to fall by the wayside. And how we think we can be God's ambassador to somebody else when our family's not what it ought to be. You know, that, that's kind of like the beam in your own eye and the speck in your brother's eye. So I would, I would challenge you this morning. Get your family right. Get your marriage right. And then based on what God does with you, share that with someone else. You can reach people through their kids and through their marriages. 
when they realize the church cares and the church uh, is interested in their well-being. And there's people in this community that need what this church has to offer because we live in a world of trauma. People who've gone through adverse circumstances that have shaped their lives, as have you. But the thing with you is you're on this side of the cross. You're on this side of forgiveness. You're on this side of the knowledge of the gospel. They're still on the other side. And you can be the bridge that brings them across that divide from the realm of darkness, Paul would tell the Colossians, to the kingdom of God's dear son. Paul told the Corinthians, God who, who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He wants us to be working and doing that. If your own life needs fixing this morning, needs restoration this morning, the good news is we serve a God who puts lives back together that have been broken by sin. I've watched him do that to kids at Foster's home for 26 years, take kids out of backgrounds of trauma and give them the ability to have hope, give them the ability to have a reason to look down the road. And he's done that very same thing with you if you've obeyed the gospel. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you can begin again today. Or as John would say in John chapter 3, you can be born again and start all over again. The past being the past, left behind, start all over again. Or you may need to say, I need to be restored. I need my spiritual life to be what it once was. This is the place of beginning again. This is the church. This is the sanctuary where God works wonders in the lives of his people, where he offers forgiveness to lives broken by sin. And so if your need this morning is to be restored back to God, we'd ask you to come while we stand and sing. Restore my spirit.